0: I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. From a minute slower than Olympic standard to a dramatic lean at the line that earned her an Olympic berth by just .04 seconds, Kim Conley takes us on quite the journey in this episode. In college, she never even qualified for the NCAA Track and Field Championships. But just three years later, she was an Olympian with her first endorsement deal. Then she returned to the Olympic stage in Rio and earned the bronze medal at the 2019 Pan American Games. She won two national titles and has traveled all over the world competing internationally in the 5,000 meters. And she's not done yet. Kim is now currently preparing for the 2024 Olympic trials, but this time in the marathon. She and her husband also own a coaching company, Next Best Run, which serves runners of all abilities across the country. Kim also serves on several USA track and field committees and sits on the board of directors for USATF Pacific Foundation. In our conversation today, Kim shows us that sometimes we just need to give ourselves the opportunity to do great things. All of our paths to get there may look different, but every effort we make matters. From just changing our mindset... To not giving up at that final lean at the line. Sometimes the smallest moments make the biggest difference. I'm hosting a live workshop on August 30th to teach you how to set high quality goals and create an entire plan of action to make those goals achievable. This Take Action workshop will be hosted on Zoom so that you can attend from anywhere. But if the timing doesn't work for you, there's also going to be recordings sent out to those who grab a seat. We're even going to have time for live Q&A at the end, and you can submit questions prior to the workshop that I'll answer during that live q and I've also created a 32-page digital workbook to go along with the workshop. That's right. I don't just want you to have the knowledge or hear the knowledge. I want you to be able to implement what you're learning. You'll walk away from this workshop with high-quality goals and a complete action plan to achieve them. You'll no longer go through your life or your sport hoping that your goals and dreams come true. This workshop is going to teach you how to create a plan to make even your biggest goals achievable. Don't miss out on this opportunity. Go snag your seat right now at laurawilkinson.com workshop. That's laurawilkinson.com workshop. Before we get started, make sure you smash that subscribe button and give Pursuit of Gold a five-star review. And please tell your friends about this podcast, share your favorite episodes, because that helps us to continue to improve and grow to that next level so that we can keep bringing you more resources, tools, and inspiration. All right, I believe that there's gold in your future, so let's dive on into this episode. Kim Conley, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I am really excited to talk with you today. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, so I know you're a two-time Olympian, you're training for another Olympics, but like let's back it up to the beginning. Were you always a runner?
1: I would say I was always an athlete, really liked soccer, really liked basketball, played volleyball in junior high, did tennis camp in the summer kind of thing. And I played softball, but I was getting a little bit bored standing at first base. And my and my and my brother and sister, they're twins, and they were only a year behind me in school. So for my mom. Baseball practice was crazy, trying to get three kids to three different practices all over town. So she was actually the one that discovered a youth track team and realized she could drop us all off at the same place for an hour every day as our spring sport. So she made the switch to from softball to track on my behalf. Um,
0: and The rest is history. That's so funny. Were you interested in that at all? or were, Did you just kind of go with the flow or were, like what was your input on that? I was
1: interested
0: because so this was that was in sixth grade and in fourth grade we'd
1: started running the mile in PE at school and there was only one boy in the class that could beat me so I kind of felt like I might be good at running and then I you know it was very humbling when I got to track practice and there were like other people that had been doing track before and had more experience Um, and I was turned out I was very middle of the pack (laughs) but I was still excited about it and then I learned that on Fridays we would run from the track to the ice cream store and get ice cream so that was a huge selling oh, point also
0: that that is a very <laughs> brilliant coaching maneuver i like it <laughs> <laughs> oh that's funny so did you start off doing distances or was it just kind of regular track you're doing all the sprints like how did that develop
1: so the very first day of track practice they had everybody go to every event and try everything out so High jump, like I couldn't even jump onto the mat. you know, they didn't even need to put the bar there. so that that was out. <laughs> Long jump, I was really didn't like getting sand in my shoes, so that was out. Shot put was not a pretty picture either. so di- distance running just
0: um, that was definitely the best fit. Oh, that's funny. So you were distance from pretty early on.
1: Yeah. I mean, back then, like we called distance 400 and up, which, you know, no one considers like at the Olympic level, the 400 distance event. So, but yeah, for what we consider distance for youth athletes, I was a distance runner.
0: Oh, that's cool. And so did your kind of like passion develop pretty quickly? Like, did you enjoy it or was it kind of like this up and down? Like what was your journey through running like from that point?
1: Yeah, I really did start to love it right away. So I did it that first spring in 6th grade as part of the track club and then moving on to junior high I went out for the cross country team that fall and I just absolutely loved it I loved like I was out there with my friends I thought the coaches were wonderful and then what I really loved is be, you know because I wasn't the best but I remember my junior high coach like pulling me aside before a meet and it, like expressing the importance of my role on the team and that because cross country is a scored event and so it basically goes like first place scores one point and second place scores two points and you the team with the lowest score wins. And so even though I was like the third best runner on my team, you know, he was kind of matching me up against the other runners on the other teams and showing me how the higher I placed, I would be kind of like the key person that would help the team do better. So that made me feel really important. And I just, I really liked that aspect that I didn't have to be winning the race and still have my performance matter.
0: Oh, that's very cool. I didn't know they did that. I didn't know it was more of a team event like that. That's awesome. Yeah. And were those like two, three mile races? Like how long were those? Yeah, those were two mile races back then. Gotcha. And so developing this through like junior high, high school, and then you went and you ran in college as well, right? Yeah, that's right. I went to UC Davis in Northern California. So what was that transition like for you? You know, it was really good.
1: I mean, that was having a team to go to in college, I think really helps that transition. You have an automatic set of friends and there were, you know, a lot of people that were older and and more established at UC Davis. And so that was just a really nice way to enter college. Like things went really well right away. I I mean, we were kind of in a weird position at UC Davis. We were transitioning from division two to division one. And so we were ineligible for postseason competition until my fourth year. But We kind of had this like made up conference (laughs) with... with other schools in that same situation all over the country. And so, um, Oh wow. yeah, so I, I won our little, you know, I'll put it in air quotes conference meet that year as a freshman. So I, you know, it, it got me off on a good start, my time at Davis. That's cool. Yeah.
0: How was your perspective of running at that point? Like I, I like that when you first started out, you, you realized you weren't one of the best, but you were important and that was valuable. Like what kind of motivations did you have when you get to college? Because I know sometimes it starts to shift for people, whether it's, you know, not like realizing, okay, maybe I don't want to do this anymore, or there's pressure because now they've got a scholarship, or there more people are counting on them, or you know, it's toward the end of their career. Like, there's different things that people go through and kind of harness in on, focus in on um, in college. Like, what was your focus kind of in those years?
1: You know, I've had so many good coaches over the years, and so I think it really just like helped shape me and and kind of like form a really solid foundation in the sport. And so, I one of my high school coaches. It was at a graduation party before like in the summer after, you know, after senior year of high school before going to college. And he pulled me aside and he was expressing his concern that having that scholarship was going to change the way I saw running and that he hoped I wouldn't lose my love of running in that environment where performance mattered more. And and so I, you know, at that time, you know, I I didn't really know what he was talking about because I hadn't lived it yet. But I was just like, no, Larry, like I'll never let that happen you know, and I was 18, but I was like, I'm a lifelong runner. Like I was committed, in, you know, <laughs> at that time that I was, I was going to be a runner for my entire life. And, and that was partly because I'd come up in the sport around people like Larry, who, um, who were just like recreational club runners that loved it and, you know, did it as master's athletes. And so they were my role models. And, and so I just kind of always had in my heart that that was my foundation. That's who I was. I was a runner and I was going to do it forever. And the scholarship and that kind of external pressure was never going to take that away from me.
0: And that was how you felt those four years?
1: Yeah, it was. And I think also, you know, kind of like going back to that junior high story, like I really believed in the team and that side of the sport. And so, you know, I came into Davis and I was the best runner on the team right away. And that was that was a new experience for me because I hadn't been, you know, when I came up in the sport. And so I was really focused on those first years on like... Really helping the coaches with the recruiting process and trying to build up the team so that we could be the type of team that would qualify for nationals when we were eventually allowed to compete in the postseason and just be surrounded by other women that we're going to like we could push each other.
0: I think that's so cool because I just never really have thought of running as a team event. I mean, you see the relays and stuff, but I've never really thought of it as this team thing. Like I've always thought it was very individual, especially the distance stuff, you know, so this is really kind of fascinating for me. Me as a diver, like I did mostly individual. We did, we do some synchronizers, a little bit of team aspect, but it's mostly individual, especially in college. And we do have a team aspect, though, where we combine with the swimmers for points and things like that. But it's like never really a focus until like the conference or the NCAA is like the other meets. It's not really as big of a deal. So it's, it's really interesting for me to hear that side from you. When you decided to go from college and like continue on, what was that decision like? Were you just like, oh, I'm just going to keep running for fun? Or were you like on it at that point? Like, I want to do something big in my sport. Like, how were you growing and developing your mindset in that way? So, in that transition
1: period, like I said, we weren't eligible to even like try to qualify for NC2As until my fourth year. So, I'd redshirted a year so that I'd have two years. And then my fourth year, I was definitely I was having a very good season. I was poised to do it, but I came down with food poisoning the day of the regional meet, so I didn't even tell the line. Oh <laughs> so, no. Nationals out the window um, that year. And then my fifth year, I was going into the regional meet with a, with an injury, which was not ideal, but I was still like determined to do it and then six hundred meters into the race, I got clipped from behind and my spike came off. <laughs> so I was trying to run one one shoe on, one shoe off. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and I ended up DNFing that race. So I never qualified for
0: NC2As on the track. So that was like this huge disappointment for me in college. I can't even imagine like in your red a year to have this extra year. Oh my goodness, Kim, <laughs> yeah. that's so
1: heartbreaking. <laughs> it really was, but that, you know, like my Family rallied around me. My coaches rallied around me, and they really were just so supportive. In like, you're not done. You know, you need to just keep doing this and keep finding out what more you have in you. And and so, you know, at that time, my PR in the five thousand was sixteen seventeen, and the the Olympic standard back then was fifteen twenty for perspective. So you know, almost a minute slower. And so it wasn't like we were talking about the Olympics by any stretch of the imagination. But I did feel like I was capable of breaking 16 minutes and to get to the Olympic trials would take just under 1550. So I felt like, wow, in three years, like, if I keep making progress, could I get to the Olympic trials? Would that make me feel accomplished and make up for this huge, like heartbreaking disappointment with college? And so, yeah, I mean, with, with the support of coaches, with the support of my family, I kind of set that goal of I want to be at the Olympic trials in three years. And, and so that's how I decided to keep pursuing it after college.
0: So did you like get a sponsor at that point or were you working or how were you like kind of making that work? Because that's always the big, hard thing is like, I want to keep being an athlete, but now I have to support myself. So how did you like survive?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that, that was a huge question. So the first year, my parents said, OK, we're, we're going to support you for a year and then, then you have to figure it out. But I think, you know, they felt like they wanted to give me that chance. And I'd been on a full ride, whereas my brother, you know, they'd paid for college for my brother and sister. So there was a little bit of a like, okay, like, well, you know, we'll make things fair and we'll support you (laughs) for this year. So I, I had their support for a year. And so I started coaching at UC Davis after I graduated as a volunteer assistant. And then after that first year, they made me a paid assistant. So... Oh, cool. That was huge. Yeah, that really helped. So that was... 2009, 2010, I was making progress, Like, did break that 16-minute barrier, did start qualifying for US championships. And then leading into the 2012, that Olympic year, I actually got this grant. I was living in Sacramento at the time. It was the Sacramento Running Association. And they gave me a grant for $10,000. And I was just coming off a fall where I'd started racing on the roads for the first time. And and I was really kind of having a breakout season. Like I was finishing on the podium at a lot of US Championship road races. And so I had made like twenty or $25,000 in prize money that fall. And so all of a sudden I was like, I was like, okay, I'm gonna step back from coaching. And it was January of 2012. And I was like, I'm gonna give myself six months. I'm going all in on running. And then if I, if I don't make it, if I can't land a contract at the end of that six months, then I'll walk away and I'll go all in on coaching and, and move on. So that was kind of like the make it or break it point for my career. I, um, I did. I, I went all in and then and kind of gave myself that six-month window to live like a professional athlete leading into the Olympic trials.
0: Oh, I love that. So were you still training with your old college team at that time? Or did you have different coaches? So now we're married. So it's my
1: husband, Drew Wartenberg. And so, yeah, he was uh, my coach back then even. And I did a lot of my training with men at UC Davis.
0: Oh, really? Just because of the timing or like just were you like the only female not in school still running or like what? How come? Just like ability
1: level, like I had progressed to a point where I could keep up with kind of the, the guys that weren't quite on the travel squad. So that was just like that's where we found the best overlap.
0: That's very cool. I always like training with guys when we were in practice because I was always trying to push the boundaries and doing the harder dives. And so I always loved kind of trying to hang with them (laughs) in practices too. So I can totally kind of like, you know, resonate with what you're saying there. That's awesome. It's like safer too somehow than women and it really pushes you. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) So tell me about the buildup. So you are giving, you're getting surprise money. You're like all in on focusing on trying to make this Olympic team, getting a contract, like I mean, you've got six months where you're like, this is it. I am putting it all on the line and I'm hoping all my dreams come true. And if not, it's time to move on. So are you just stoked? Like, I just want to understand your mindset as we're going into Olympic trials, because that is such a cool story. But going into it, like, are you just focused and determined like this is going to happen? Are you like having holy crap moments? What am I doing? Like, is it really where's your mindset at this point? What is your mind saying to you?
1: I remember just being so happy. I felt like, you know, when I when I'd originally set that goal in 2009 of I just want to be at the Olympic trials and that would kind of make up for all the prior disappointments. And then all of a sudden, as, as 2012 progressed, it was like, oh, I'm going to the Olympic trials and I'm going as a way better athlete than I ever imagined I could be. And so I just felt so much positive momentum and absolutely, you know, I didn't have the Olympic standard in April I ran fifteen twenty four so I was five seconds off. So I knew in my heart because especially because I'd been making so much progress just every five thousand, it was like another p r just shaving seconds off all the time. like I knew in my heart I have the ability to go into the Olympic trials and run the standard. That rarely happens, and so you know, on paper, no one ever would have predicted me to make the Olympic team, so I felt zero pressure, <laughs> no expectation, nobody else was looking at me identifying me as a contender. But I felt like I had that outside shot. And so it was just fun. I just
0: felt really like excited by the opportunity. Oh, that's so cool. And so you were at 1524 and you had to get, what was the qualifying standard? 1520 or get under 1520. Okay. So you were super close. Yeah. But still like, I mean, seconds are (laughs) still hard to come by. So walk us through the trials. Like it was such a dramatic event. My daughter and I were watching the the video recap on your website earlier today. It was so exciting. (laughs) So walk us through that race because it was really, really an amazing, amazing moment.
1: Yeah, it it was dramatic. So championship races like are notoriously tactical because all that matters is that you finish in the top three to make it to the Olympics. Well you you have to have the Olympic standard and finish in the top three in order to make the team. So everybody that already possesses the standard that you know ran it earlier in the year, all they care about is finishing in the top three. So nobody wants to push the pace and it comes down to like a kick finish for those top three spots. But I didn't have the standard, so I couldn't afford to let the pace be slow. So Leading a race is more tiring than following and just like going for the ride. You kind of like mentally can turn off a little bit. So I had to go to the front and keep pushing the pace to try to keep us on pace, which is like, I know isn't ideal, but it, you know, it was like something Drew and I had talked about going into it. It was just like the risk I had to take. Right. There's a lot of strategy, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So I was leading, you know, more than ideal in the beginning and then at 3000 meters, I looked at the clock and I saw her split and I thought, oh, well, we're way too slow. There's no way we can do that. I, you know, there's no way we can get this standard now. Like the Olympic dream is out the window. And so I definitely had like a mentally weak moment at that point where I was just like, oh, okay, the dream's lost. And I faded back to eighth place. And right around that time, Julia Lucas made this huge move. Three laps to go, she just put on like a huge surge. On the race, and it broke open the entire race. So I was going backwards. She was getting further and further away. Julie Cully and Molly Huddle were responding.
0: If I can just pause for a minute. Yeah. As my daughter and I are watching that moment, it's so interesting hearing you describe it because I, I know there's some kind of like comeback that's coming, and I'm watching it and I'm like, how on earth is she going to do this? Because this lady that you're talking about has taken off so far in front of everyone, and you are just slowly slipping back farther and farther. And it just, it was like, how is this even going to happen? How is it even going to happen? Like, it was crazy how far back it looked, at least, you know, on the TV. I can't imagine how much that must have felt at that point.
1: Yeah. I mean, it did feel like a lot. I wasn't even paying attention anymore to what was going on in front of the race, to be honest. And it was a a lap and a half later. So 600 meters left in the race. I ran by where Drew was standing and I heard him yelling for me and I just kind of snapped out of it. I was just, I'd been in a little bit of a mental funk. And I suddenly was like, you need to regroup and you need to leave your heart out on this track because we worked so hard to get here. And it's, you know, it's, it's been this incredible journey and you just need to finish the race feeling like you gave it everything you had. And because I'd been making so much progress, like the year before, I think I finished 11th at the U S championships, which was my highest finish ever. And so it's like, whatever I did that was better than that, it's still a step forward and something I was going to build off. So I was like, I just, I just need to like stop Fixating on the outcome and just try to run as hard as I possibly can and see where that lands me. And I, so I was in eighth place, and, but I was kind of in the back of a group. And so I could see that I could easily move into fifth place if I just tried a little bit harder. So I, I went around three women and put myself in fifth place. And that's coming into the straightaway, coming up on a lap to go. And that's when I started to see that Molly and that. So once I was like out from eighth place and actually could see around the pack. That's when I could see what was going on way up ahead of me. And that's when I saw that Julie and Molly were passing Julia and they'd made up all that ground um after her huge move. And then I realized like she was really starting to hurt from that move and, and running a lot slower. And so coming into a lap to go, I just suddenly started thinking about like, well, like what if I could catch third? And I and I really believed that the Olympic standard was out the window still. So I wasn't thinking that I could make the Olympic team, but I just thought, wow, what if I could stand on the podium at the Olympic trials? Like that would be a huge honor and so exciting. And so I really just I just got excited thinking about what what if I can be on the podium. And so I just started like barreling down to try to go for that third position. And it came down to the last hundred meters. And I could Hayward Field was just like absolutely packed. And then I could tell that they could see what was unfolding before them because just the way the crowd noise was elevating down that last hundred and I was flying down to catch her. And so as we got to the line, I leaned at the line, which was just pure instinct. Or like, you know, when I was a kid racing my brother and sister, we would pretend to be sprinters, but no distance runner normally leans right? (laughs) for whatever reason that came out. And I leaned at the line and I felt like with my momentum, I felt pretty confident that I'd taken third place, but I still, I really thought that the Olympic standard wasn't going to happen at all. So then there was like a very, very long pause because They had to sort out the photo finish to see like what the times were and what the places were. And so everyone was just kind of like standing around, wondering what the outcome was. And then the results popped up on the Jumbotron and the Olympic rings were next to my name. And in the process of that, like really winding down the finish, I'd run under the Olympic standard by 0.21 seconds. Oh
0: man. Oh, that is so epic. That is so epic. And I'm telling you, watching that photo finish too, it's still hard to see almost in the photo finish. like, Is there a certain part of your body that has to cross the line first or can it be any part or what's the judgment call on that?
1: It's the chest. That's why sprinters lean at the line that way to get the chest and no, distance races just never come down to that margin. So why I did that, I don't know. (laughs) But thankfully I did
0: that was such a cool moment. And then, then, yeah, watching you, you're kind of, you know, breathing or whatever. And then it's viewing you from the back. The little clip is viewing you from the back and all of a sudden your hands just, you're just, you know, you got your hands on top of your head and you're just breathing and all of a sudden your hands like fly up in the air and you're like, what? And <laughs> it's just, it is so awesome. Oh, it's such a cool moment. I have like goosebumps thinking about it. Were you just in shock at that point? Were you excited? Did you even realize what happened? I was in total shock. I I couldn't believe it. So I was actually born
1: in England. My mom is English. And so it was the London Olympics. And I knew that it meant so much. We have family in England. I knew it meant so much to my family that we were going to get to go to the Olympics. It just seemed like something so unrealistic and far out of reach that it's not something we ever like could actually talk about. And so it's <laughs> just one of those things that I was just like, I was shocked and I was thrilled. And I was just like, I'm so excited to see
0: my mom. (laughs) That is so cool. So what was your experience at the games like? I mean, you have this epic finish, you make it into the Olympic games. Like what was that whole experience like? And how did you even plan for it? Because I mean, you had been training for the trials. So was it hard to kind of like regroup and have this a new big event in front of you like that?
1: Yeah, it was because we were like full on peak for the Olympic trials because, you know, why not? Like there was no reason to act like there was season beyond the Olympic trials. And then I I honestly didn't sleep for three nights. Like I was just, (laughs) I was in such a state of shock. I would just like lie in my bed in the hotel wide awake all night. Just like, I can't believe like my whole life has changed. I can't believe this. So yeah, I definitely like had to, I think I took two days off and then just went for a very easy run with friends and just kind of like slowly got the wheels turning again. And then, I mean, I left it to Drew, but he did a good job of kind of like completely resetting me and almost making like a mini season out of the summer to like stroke some bass training chords again before we just like got back onto the track and and then tried to do a second peak for later in the summer.
0: Yeah, how much time was there before between like trials and your event at the Games?
1: I think it was close to eight weeks, maybe six to eight weeks, somewhere in there. So I also got to go over to Europe and do some racing beforehand. Well, and after which, you know, like, because I wasn't like a full blown professional runner before that, that season, like I'd never gotten to go over to Europe and race before. So it was all just really exciting to just finally feel like I'd made it and got to be on the pro circuit for track.
0: That's so cool. What was the like Olympic experience? Like, was it all you had like hoped and dreamed of? Or was it totally different? Or were you kind of like, eh, you know, or <laughs> what was what was that like for you?
1: Yeah, no, it really was. It really was amazing. Because, you know, I mean, I just remember the opening ceremonies, it just really hitting me because that stadium in London with like with 80,000 people packed into the stands and the the energy from it, like, I was just like, I was really moved by it. And oh man, I wish I remember his name because you would probably know it. But I remember another like very poignant moment for me was in the Olympic Village. I had been watching the diving on TV the day before and, and watching this guy win a gold medal. It was David Bedaya, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then the next day. I got into the elevator in our building and there he was standing with and his and his gold medal was around his neck and I, I was just like floored. I was like, it's a gold medal in real life. Oh, that's
0: so cool. Did you ask him to see it? No. Oh I was way too shy. Oh my gosh, he totally would have let you see it. Come on now. Next time. <laughs> that's so cool. So did you compete well in London? How did it go?
1: So I actually PR'd by
0: another five seconds. Holy cow, really? <laughs>
1: Yeah! Wow, I lowered my time down to fifteen fourteen, but that wasn't good enough to get to the final. So I kind of left with mixed feelings because I was like, "Well, you know, it was kind of humbling to feel like I delivered, you know, better than my best, and that still was just like good enough for twelfth in the prelim." But I also felt just very inspired by the whole experience because I was surrounded by all these incredible athletes. And I was just like, I've made it. And now I have four years stretching out before me. And I want to use those four years to become an even better athlete and return to this stage.
0: So like immediately you're planning. I love it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Did you have any like some, some athletes, a lot, most athletes actually talk about kind of having this season afterward where maybe it's even like depressive or, you know, cause you, you've been building up for so long for this big event. And then there's just this letdown of emotions and adrenaline and you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, all of the things. And there's sometimes kind of this big dip. Did you experience that at all? I know, like you said, runners, a lot of runners sometimes have meets right after that. So I don't know if you had to stay up for a much longer time or was there ever kind of any, any dip after that, or were you able to kind of get right back up and into it?
1: After London, so my experiences for London and Rio were different in that regard. But after London, I didn't experience the like dip or depression. What I experienced was anxiety and pressure. Like I came off the experience and I was like, everybody thinks I'm a fluke. And now I have to prove that I'm not. And I just started putting like all kinds of pressure on myself that I never had before. And so I immediately strained my calf. Trying to return to training as like hard and quickly as possible after my break, yeah, I just felt like like I'd been working with a sports psychologist at UC Davis. Like I started my freshman year, I still work with him. Like we're, we've been friends for oh,
0: same guy. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, twenty years now. But I would say like coming off the Olympics, it like the work really shifted then, like from what I would call kind of like basic sports psych tools that anybody probably would use, kind of like at a high school collegiate level and and then all of a sudden like the the work we were doing i feel like really kicked up to a different level because i i needed yeah i just I, the the type of like pressure and stress i was coping with was just like really heightened
0: how long did it take you to kind of work through some of that
1: i definitely remember a moment in the fall that helped i had a meeting with him and you know and i was expressing kind of this fear of being considered a fluke and and he he made this analogy to golf and he was like so you went and you hit a hole in one in your first big golf tournament. And he's like, That doesn't mean you're not going to ever play better golf. And I was like, Oh, yeah. And, I, and I, like, suddenly I kind of like relaxed a little. I was like, I'm probably not going to have another race that shocks the world again, but I'm going to become an even more consistent performer on that level. And people are going to be used to seeing me perform on that level. And so that like, that kind of shifted my mindset back into the just kind of like, I've arrived and, and this is you know, where I dwell now, but less worried about how people were going to perceive me. And then I went to the U.S. Cross-Country Championships that February and I performed really well there and I made the World Cross-Country Championship team. So then I felt like I kind of proved to myself that I wasn't a fluke <laughs> in
0: that moment. Yeah. I kind of went through a similar thing. Like I won my first Olympics and then after that was really nervous. Like, okay, what do I do? Cause I, I wanted to keep training and keep diving. But then I was like, well, how do you, what do you do after, after you win that? Like, wh- what do people think of you? And so I was putting like a lot of pressure on myself too. And the best thing, that happened to me was that I went and got fifth at nationals. My, that was my next meet. I won the Olympics and then I got fifth at nationals and I was so mortified and embarrassed and I hadn't been training much, you know, and it was just like this miserable moment, but the best thing happened because in that moment, my friends were still my friends. People were just still happy I was diving. They didn't even care. Like they were just happy I was there and they cared about me as a person. And I realized that my self-worth is not based on my performance alone, you know? And so that for me was what kind of like helped me get through that. So it's kind of cool. We had like almost an opposite, you know, kind of thing that got us through that, but it's cool. It sometimes takes big moments to help you realize, okay, everything's going to be all right, (laughs) you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So how was your buildup? I mean, now you're professional, now you're legit and you're going for another four. And this is like your thing. It's not just a six month Hail Mary. This is it on the line. Like you're committed. So what is that next journey to Rio like?
1: Well, the journey was, it started out really well. So I made that world cross country team. I made the world championship team on the track the next summer, I made the final. So I got out of the prelim and made it to the final of the world championships. So that was like, yeah, felt like kind of like I'd redeem myself a little bit from the Olympics. Although it's a lot more competitive at the Olympics. So <laughs> I don't know if it's a great comparison, but in my mind at the time, I was like, all right, I notched that one. And I then the following summer, I won my first US title and that was in the 10,000. And part of my vision was to go to Rio in the 10,000. <laughs> it's kind of silly, but that was also part of my strategy because the, the 10,000 doesn't have a prelim. So you're automatically in the final. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so I was like, all right, I want to try to make this in the 10,000. So I was moving up to the 10,000, exploring that distance. And then my first crack at it at a national championship, I won. So that was like a very big, yeah, that was like a big moment in my career. The U.S. championships were also in Sacramento that year. So it was really fun kind of hometown feel. And and I had lots of friends and family in the stands. And then I moved all the way up to the half marathon and went to the U.S. half marathon championships. And I won that. So everything was like really clicking and coming together exactly the way I wanted it to. And then I got injured. (laughs) What kind of injury? Plantar fasciitis. It definitely like curtailed my ability to run the way I needed to at all or train, you know, to be able to be competitive. And there's just like no timeline in sight for when, you know, it's not like when you break a bone and it's very like set, even though, you know, it sounds like a jail sentence when you're told like, you have to take eight weeks off, like at least in that situation, you know what you have to do to heal and then come back. But with planter, there's just nobody really knows. (laughs) It just
0: takes its time. So it was very, very frustrating. And what, what point of the quad was that? Was that 2013, 14, 15? That was spring of 2015. Okay. Yeah. So World
1: Championships where I made the final was 2013. Winning that first US title was 2014. And then 2015 got hurt. And so I really couldn't start racing again until the fall.
0: Oh, wow. That's a long time. Yeah. And so
1: I'd missed the entire track season. And I really wanted to try to knock out my standards so that, you know, like... In 2012, it was like literally down to the wire of trying to run that Olympic standard in the race. But, you know, I felt like I was at a point in my development where I was like, oh, you, you know, like I'm, I'm going to knock out the standards in the season before, like as soon as the qualifying window opens and then be one of the people at the Olympic trials that can just be run it tactically and just go for the top three finish. <laughs> um, but I missed that entire season. <laughs> so, but so Drew organized a late winter 10,000 for any and everyone that, you know, wanted to come together and try to either run an Olympic trial standard or the Olympic standard. Cause distance runners do like, we're a little bit different than other track disciplines where we do race throughout the year, like on the roads and in cross country. And so it was like, there aren't track meets usually, but we are often in shape, even not in the spring to run those type of times. So he organized kind of like an off season, one off 10,000 where people could go do this. But meanwhile, while all of this is going on. My dad was getting really sick with a weird and rare disease that took a long, long time to diagnose. And so it turned out that it was terminal. And we found that out in November. I mean, he was like a huge, huge supporter of my career. And so he was kind of like very adamant, that, you know, that I continue going about my business. So we set up this race for early December and we'd actually organized to have it live stream. Cause at that point he was getting to a point where he was just so weak. He wasn't going to be able to travel to, to even see the race. So we'd set up to have it live streamed. And I remember telling him like, Hey, you're going to be able to watch it. You know, it was in six days for a week. And he was like, he was, uh, he just like shook his head. Like, no, like he wasn't going to watch it. And I was just like, Oh, I was like, he's not going to be here in a week. Like he he knew, and it was like this like weird moment where I was like, kind of like realizing because you know the no nobody really wanted to believe that obviously, but then he told me in that moment, like he was like, you don't want to be trying to run the ten thousand meter standard in the spring. <laughs> and he's like, and he's like, then you, he's like, even get this next week. He was like breaking it all down for me basically and the importance of why I needed to go and <laughs> knock out the Olympic standard next week even though he was also trying to tell me in this conversation that he probably wasn't going to be here. And there were some things that I needed to like help take care of for my mom. We were were having this whole like weird conversation about the future that didn't involve him. And at the same time, he's saying like, he's like, but you have to go take care of business. (laughs) Okay, dad. But yeah, so he died that week. And then I went to the race. And it was before we'd even had the memorial service. So all my family came out, and it was the first moment that they had all gathered together since he died. And so it was—it like, was really different. You know, it was—it was in the exact same stadium, Hornet Stadium at Zach State, where I would won the national title in 2014 in the 10,000. And then this was this like really, really heavy emotional moment. I was just like in a tunnel, like I am on a mission. I have to go carry out his wishes and get this Olympic standard and do it for my family. So that was like a very big hard emotional moment on that journey up to 2016 trials. Do you got the standard? Yep. I got the standard and then later that winter I went and got the 5000 meter standard. And so I went to the Olympic trials and it was just it was hard, you know, like that whole period was just a different totally different feel of like trying to balance grief and shoulder, you know, some of my mom's grief, but also still being like being a professional athlete. I don't have to tell you, like, you can be very selfish. Like, you have to make so many choices that are about your performance. That was a really hard thing to balance.
0: If I can slow down a minute, like, how did you balance off that? I mean, first of all, like, you know, I'm hearing you're coming off an injury where you haven't been able to like race for months and months and months. And then it's coming down to this point where you're trying to qualify and your dad passes and everyone's there and it's like at the memorial is basically your your qualifying standard moment and i understand why it probably even though it was hard empowered you because you had this purpose right this purpose beyond yourself and that's probably what drove you at that point which is heartbreakingly beautiful you know but how did you balance those next yeah months as you're like you said training and yeah being a professional athlete is very selfish it's very difficult and you're trying to be there for your mom and And balance all that in your own grief, too. Like, how did you manage that? How did you not kind of just crack under all of that?
1: I've been told that I'm very good at compartmentalizing, which I think all elite athletes are. We have to be. And then I really just, I picked my moments where, I mean, basically, it was like I lived two different lives almost in my mind. It was like I would go be with my family. And I just like when I was with them, I just completely like reveled in what we were doing and feeling and and spending that time together. And then when I wasn't, when I was with my team, teammates training or a training camp, like I just like completely allowed myself to carry on with life as it was before and not be thinking about it.
0: But you know, that's probably good because you still went with your family and allowed yourself to have all the emotions and feel the feelings. Like I think when some people try to compartmentalize, they just try to stuff it all in a box and not feel it. And that's when it really starts to, I think, kind of break you from the inside. You know, like it's hard to separate those, but like, I love that you still allowed yourself to feel it and walk through it because you can't move past it unless you walk through it. Right. No, exactly. Exactly.
1: And and I still think like maybe I was a little bit stunted even in, you know, not, you know like trying to like kind of just like wear one hat, you know, one hat one week and another hat another week because, you know, later in my career like it, stuff came back later. But yes, like you're exactly right. Like and especially that was good for me to, to like get through that 6 months and get to the Olympic trials. And Dr. Paul, my sports psychologist, he was really like a key factor in that and he even came to Altitude Camp, you know, to just kind of like be along for the ride to to kind of help me through that whole period, you know, when it was like at its hardest. Because the timing of that was it's terrible, was we were away for altitude camp over Christmas. And so it was like the first Christmas without my dad and I was away training. And that, that was probably the hardest moment of it all. Oh, that's so awful. But at the same time, like my family was so supportive. And my mom was kind of like, well, this Christmas sucks anyway. <laughs> like, <so go.
0: laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> uh, that's so hard. Yeah. I'm glad you had a good support system there for sure. What was this trials like? Was it? I mean, because this time it's obviously a total 180 from from 2012. Like you've got your standard, you're more confident. You're like one of the people to beat. Like, did you just run the ten thousand, or did you do both events at the trials?
1: So yeah, the 2016 trials, (laughs) I got clipped from behind about two miles into the race and my shoe came off.
0: That remind you of college a little bit. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And so after that college
1: experience, I had learned some lessons about how you deal with that. Oh, that's good. (laughs) I didn't kick my shoe off and then drop out of the race. I (laughs) sat down, I put it back on, and then I very methodically started picking people back up to try to get back up into the race. But five miles in the top four were completely broken away and I started to realize, like I don't think this is going to happen, and I do have a standard in the five thousand, and like I couldn't hear Drew at all. Like, I didn't even know where he was standing. I kind of felt like I had to make a decision for myself, and so I decided to step off the track and save myself for the five thousand, which <laughs> was a really hard decision to make. Yeah, and it was just like you know I felt like my whole plan was had turned on its head, and so I you know I remember I got through the mix zone, and Drew was standing there. And I was just like, what do we do now? Like, you know, as if the world were ending. And he was like, you're going to get in the ice bath and then you're going to need a meal. And (laughs) I was like, okay, thank you. Like, you know, I was like thinking big picture, like, what do we do now? And he just like broke it down right into the immediate, like, what is step one that we need to do, which was recover. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what we did. And from there, took it day by day and came back in the 5,000 and ended up getting third in the 5,000. And So I made the Olympic team in the 5,000 that year also.
0: Nice. And what, what was Rio like? Rio
1: was definitely kind of a letdown compared to London. One part, just because of the atmosphere, like the, the stands weren't packed. And it just wasn't like, it just didn't quite have the same feel and energy that London had. had. And then also it was me. I didn't have a great race and you know, I'd done so much work and made so much progress over that four years, you know, and the the whole vision in twenty twelve was to get back to that stage and be an even greater level of athlete and I ended up finishing twelfth in my heat and not advancing to the final and in the exact same position as I did in London and so I was just really disappointed that after that four years, I did feel like I was a much better athlete, but nothing in my performance reflected that
0: so what was the plan from there? Was this like a a harder after? Like, was there a plan to continue at this point or were you just kind of trying to figure all that out?
1: I actually already at that point signed my contract with New York Roadrunners to make my marathon debut that fall. So, which in hindsight wasn't very smart. Like I I could have paced myself a little better, but (laughs) I went for it. And so, yeah, I, I left Rio. I was definitely a little more like disappointed and dejected than after London. But I, I had to turn the page right away because I was off to make my marathon debut in November.
0: What made you want to do that? Like, because that's something different that I, I'm i not familiar with. Like, is it just fun and it sounds neat to try a different length of race, like a longer race? Or what, what is it that attracts you? Because you, you, you started dabbling, you know, from five to 10, from 10 to half, you know, now full. Like, what's leading you that direction?
1: I mean, a big part of it is... The big picture trajectory with longevity, because just as you, so in 2016, I was 30. So as you get older, like you're going to lose your ability, especially if you're like well trained and kind of like been running as long as I have. Like, you know, it's, it's obviously not a hard rule that applies to everybody, there's individual variants, but it's common to like stop making improvements at the shorter distances as you get older but you have the ability to sustain that endurance for the longer events. Ah, interesting. Into your late 30s. So it was kind of with a big picture eye on that as like, you know, long term I'm going to move up to longer and longer distances. And then I mean, there's also a financial factor like there's just a lot more money on the roads.
0: Oh, okay. At the longer distances at the marathon level. Yeah, it's
1: just like prize money is better and then the appearance fees are better. I think just because it's such a like huge mass participation sport and so like you know between between the people that are involved and then all the sponsors that come with it there's just there's just a lot more money in it than on the track
0: gotcha so you can really make a good living just sustaining yeah. that. yeah that's awesome when you were shifting into like the marathon focus were you still thinking like the next Olympics like Tokyo? Or were you just kind of going for some different things? Because marathons happen all over the place all the time, like big ones, you know? So how did that shape your, I guess, training plan and, and ideas going forward? At that time, I was definitely thinking about
1: being ready for the Olympic trials and the marathon for 2020. And then I had some injury stuff that just, like God, like stalled my development. And I, just I didn't have time to master the marathon in time for 2020. So I kind of went into it all got a little weird from there, basically, because it didn't follow the plan leading up to 2020. So then I was going to shift focus and return to the track for the end of that Olympic cycle and then move to the marathon for the 2024 Olympic cycle. Oh, and then but then the COVID stuff. And so then lost another track season in there. Yeah. So it just yeah, it it got a little weird for a while.
0: So had you already shifted to back to the track when COVID hit? Yeah, I had. Okay. So did you kind of immediately like forget this or were you trying to hang on? Like, like, what was your, uh, yeah, like what happened? Cause it affected everybody so differently. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was
1: so weird because when, when everything shut down, they'd actually already had the Olympic trials in the marathon. So we picked our Olympic team for the marathon in February of 2020 and they didn't get to compete in the marathon, obviously until 2021. Wow. I know got it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean during that time I kind of just I just ran. I thought, you know, compared to what a lot of people went through, like I was perfectly fine and very happy. Like we were in Blackstaff where we live full time now, and I did a lot of trail running and just kind of like being out in the forest exploring.
0: Well, that's good. Yeah,
1: I just kind of tried to enjoy the time and not worry too much about I mean, it was hard, obviously, like anytime you don't know what's coming and you kind of feel like, you know, especially before they actually postponed the Olympics when it was just like, how ready do I need to be? And like, how do I stay ready? You know, those were all just kind of like weird questions.
0: Yeah, no, I get that. Is that around the time you kind of shifted into coaching in this new role? Like, how did that kind of happen?
1: That happened in 2021. And it was actually a friend, a neighbor who, who has a very successful coaching business. And, and he had been kind of softly recruiting me to coach for him for a long time, for years. And I'd been resistant. But yeah, coming out of that time was when we revisited it. And I was like, you know what, I'm ready. Like, I loved coaching when I was at UC Davis, and I missed it. And I realized that with kind of like the online remote coaching, like it would offer me the ability to get back to that without having to be standing out of the track in person you know on a college schedule so he brought me into his business in 2021 and then my husband was working for a different coaching service and he wasn't as happy with his i was actually very happy (laughs) with where i was working but drew want drew kind of had a vision for like oh we could do our own thing and so eventually he talked me into okay let's launch our own thing and so so i left the one that i was with too
0: So tell me a little bit about it. Like you've got your own company. What's it called? Uh, It's called Next Best Run. Next Best Run. I like that. And so what do you guys do? You connect solely with runners and like what do you work with them on? How does it work? How do you coach somebody online like that?
1: So, I mean, we work with runners of all abilities. So I'm working with a woman that just ran a really good marathon and is you know, going to try to make it to the Olympic trials in the marathon. That's kind of like the elite end. And then I work with people that have never run before at all and want to run their first 5K. And so the training it really varies because you know, I I'm working with whatever kind of comes in the door as somebody's starting point and then what their goals are. And then in terms of like the logistics of it, it's a an app called Final Surge. And that's it's like a calendar where I load training and then their watches sync to it. So the training that they do actually uploads into the calendar and I can look at it and that has all the data like cadence and heart rate and pace and elevation change. And then we just, we, we kind of interact. I mean, for me, coaching is like goes way beyond the data. You know, a lot of it is about where running is fitting into a person's life and how they're feeling. And so I like to have a lot of communication and, and interaction with the people that I work with.
0: Ah, that's very cool. I love it. I love that so much. And you're back to marathon running. Yes. And going for Paris 2024? Yeah, I um I I qualified for the Olympic trials last fall
1: and so I'll be racing on the roads this fall and then kind of getting ready for the next marathon being next February um at the Olympic trials in Orlando. How are you feeling going into it? So I I have been injured this spring. I'm coming out of that and so I'm getting excited. I think I'll start racing in September and I'm a total long shot to make the team, but You know, I'm kind of okay with that actually, just given my whole history and trajectory. I like that mindset of just going in it to run the best possible marathon I have in me and not putting any pressure on myself.
0: I love it. Well, we definitely want to wish you the best of luck. And where can we like follow you online so that we can keep cheering you on and learning more about your coaching and all of those things?
1: Yeah, awesome. Thank you.
0: Instagram is probably the best place, KF Conley. K.F. Conley. Okay, perfect. We'll make sure to link to that in the show notes so everybody can kind of keep track of you. But Kim, thank you for coming on, for sharing your story. So many ups and downs, but so many valuable lessons. Uh, We really appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.